0: So as we've been going through this book of James, James is a very practical book. James has very uh, sage guidance and wisdom and sometimes rebuke to offer us. Sometimes James is called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And some scholars will call it that because it's this book of wisdom. It's this book dispensing uh, practical guidance and advice that's rooted in the gospel. It's Advice and wisdom that's rooted in a transformed life of Christ. How then we should we live? How then should the gospel of Christ, the cross and his death and resurrection, affect how I live? How should it affect my family? How should it affect my relationship, my work, my finances, my habits? The gospel affects all of this. And that's what James is interested in because sometimes it sounds like finger wagging or moralizing when you read through the book of James. It sounds like, don't do this, do that. It sounds like, Jesus did this, yeah, that's important, but here's how you really need to live, and that's what's important. It's easy to read James like that sometimes and to forget about the foundational truths of the gospel and how the gospel helps us to ask the more fundamental questions. The gospel helps us to ask the better questions when we encounter Jesus, when we are, our lives are changed by the gospel, we're able to see things in light of the gospel and ask better questions about our life. So James asks questions like, why should I boast in these things that are passing away? Meeting and growing and knowing and growing in Jesus helps us to ask the right questions. Instead of asking, how can I maximize my time, my success here on earth? But rather... In light of the gospel, in light of eternity, how can I then love God and love my neighbor most effectively here? How can I live in such a way here that prepares me for eternity? So when we come to our passage today, when we read this uh, practical wisdom and guidance that James has for us today, we know that it's rooted in the gospel, and it's about a fundamental shift in worldview that we read. So our passage today is split n- neatly into two different sections at the chapter division. And it will be helpful for you to have your Bible open in front of you. James, start, uh, James 4, starting in verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 6. So we've got two different sections that James is addressing here. Two different groups that are distinct, but he's linking them. He says at the beginning of each section, come now. Exhorting them, calling them on, stand here, I've got something to say to you. And the gospel has something to say to you. There's a rolling exhortation here about where do we put our faith? What do you trust in? And it's a rebuke to those who put their faith in money and in power and in success. So these two groups, who are we talking to? Uh, Biblical scholar Craig Keener asserts that the first group is like the merchant class. And the merchant class were those who would go around. They would buy and sell and trade. They would build up their businesses uh, and make a profit. But they didn't have a high social class. They weren't like the highly respected uh, people of society. That was the second group. The second group is the aristocratic landowners. This high class society that made their wealth through owning land and gaining a profit by renting it out to tenant farmers. So in both of these groups, there's the the thread that connects them of their trust in money, their trust in wealth and success or power. And it's not wealth itself that's criticized. It's not having money in itself that's criticized. It's important for us to know. But it's the boastful arrogance of the worldview that underlies their actions. It's not about seeking a prophet that James has issue with, but it's a worldview that only focuses on this life. A worldview that has you at the center, trying to grasp at control, trying to be Lord of your own life. That's what James is calling out here today. So let's look starting at verse 13. He says come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's speaking to these merchants, these businessmen who are characterized by a deliberate and self-confident planning out their future, mapping out how they're going to build profit. And these are the entrepreneurs of first century ancient world. They're the go-getters. They're the ones who, in our society, we uphold as exemplars of the American dream. That if you work hard enough, if you're creative enough, you can do whatever you want. You can accomplish your dreams. You can make it big. So why are they criticized for something we so admire and uphold? And this reveals that uh, when making a profit is the main goal, and that's your bottom line, it reveals something about what you find most important. It reveals a worldview that's only focused on this life. That disregards the reality of God and eternity. James says this is arrogance. It may not seem like a deep abiding sin or wickedness, but there's an underlying arrogance to this attitude and this approach and this presumption that they feel secure enough to ignore God and to leave him out of their calculations. Because in making these plans, these entrepreneurs are failing to reckon with the most fundamental fact of life, that you don't know what tomorrow will bring, James says. Life is unpredictable. Life is transitory and fleeting and out of our control. And they've forgotten the most fundamental empirically provable fact of life that you are not in control that life is not able to be contained by your plans James says what is your life what is your life it's not possible for you to be more than a vanishing mist only a blip in the arc of history and the arc of history is but a blip in all of eternity A vanishing mist, James says, is here one moment and gone the next. And what are we more than that? James would call us to just a realistic reckoning with the brevity of life and the unpredictability of life. And he's not alone in that. This is throughout scripture that calls us to this realistic understanding of life and our situation. And our length of days here. Psalm 90 verse 12. Praise to God. So teach us to number our days. That we may get a heart of wisdom. Proverbs 27.1 says. Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring. It's possible that James is actually quoting. Or alluding to this proverb. This is the reality of life. That it's short. It's fleeting. And it's unpredictable. And to try to pretend otherwise. Is foolish. It's arrogance. Now, I think if there's one thing that all of us should collectively have solidly learned deeply in our souls in this last season of life in 2020, it's that we are not in control. If you haven't learned that lesson by now, uh, maybe you need more of 2020 uh, to hammer you over the head. But we are not in control How how obvious has that become to us? How many of us made plans for 2020 that had to get scrapped? Travel plans, family gatherings, business ventures, life changes. How many small businesses have gone under or will go under soon because of the economic impact of the pandemic? How many people have had to put a hold on their hopes or their dreams or had their hopes and their dreams crushed? because of this. We're not in control. If we try to live that way, it's an illusion and a false reality. And when we neglect this fundamental truth, when we neglect God's sovereignty, when we neglect, it neglect eternity and the fact that we are not in control, we so often err into sin. By neglecting God, The arrogance is that we're claiming to know enough about the universe and the way things work to justify making plans that take advantage of that for our own gain. There's an arrogance that presumes to know enough about the way things work in the universe, to plan out your own future as you consider yourself lord of the universe, master of your own destiny, captain of your own ship. James says this kind of boasting is evil. It may not seem like wickedness, but the boasting and the arrogance that underlines that attitude is evil because it's rooted in the sinful negligence and it's blasphemy against the Lord. Because verse 15, James says, instead of this, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, then we'll make a profit. If the Lord wills, then we'll travel. If the Lord live, wills, then I'll live another day tomorrow. James says, instead of trying to control the universe around us, instead we should need to submit to the Lord who is in control of the universe. To recognize God's reality in our day-to-day lives, and God's sovereignty over all things. Trust in the will of the Lord, James exhorts us. Entrust yourself to the will of the Lord. Entrust your plans to the will of the Lord. Entrust your business ventures and your family and your community, your nation, to the will of the Lord who is in control. Scripture tells us that God's will is for our salvation and it's for our good. The question is do you believe that? Do you trust in that? This is what the gospel helps us to reframe our thinking and to know God and to know his power, to know his eternity, to know his sovereignty, and to come to trust in him. In verse 17, James says then, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James has now told us what the right thing to do is. He's taken away the excuse of ignorance. And he tells us to give honor and appropriate consideration to the Lord, to entrust yourself to his will rather than trying to make your own will come to reality. Now we have to do that. And if we don't do that, James says, it's sin for us. And Scripture makes clear that sins of omission, not doing something, are just as serious as sins of commission, the things that we do. That's why in our prayer of confession every week, we pray for forgiveness for the things we have done and the things we have left undone. Neglecting the reality of God and his sovereignty is sin, James says. Trying to establish your own will over his is sin. James moves on to the next group. These wealthy landowners. And many scholars think that these are actually, this is actually addressed to non-Christian aristocratic landowners. Because they're the ones that kill the righteous ones. Uh, so James, they wonder if James is actually talking to non-Christians here. But these are wealthy landowners who exploit workers for their own gain. And James speaks quite harshly. He doesn't mince words. He sounds like one of the Old Testament prophets when he says, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And in many places throughout the Bible, the rich, the wealthy, the oppressors are treated in this way. and Condemned for being oppressors and exploiters of the poor and remember it's not that they're just that they're rich it's not just that they have wealth but that they gain their wealth through exploitation through oppression these are those who lift themselves up by stepping on the backs of others it's not condemning for being rich for having a certain amount in your bank account but it's for the misuse of that wealth and the wicked ways that it's gained James says that for these, the wealth that they have gained for themselves is worthless. It has no value at all anymore. It's faded away. It's corroding, and it's decaying. And more than that, this corrosion, uh, this decay is evidence against them. It's weighed against them. It will bring a guilty verdict that will then eat their flesh like fire, James says, which is just an image of the judgment that's coming. That their wealth is rusted out, moth eaten, which echoes, I think, Jesus' words in our gospel reading in Matthew 6. That they have put their trust in worldly treasure, that which moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. They're putting all their eggs in that basket, putting all their trust in these things that are, fa- are passing away, and neglecting heavenly treasure, neglecting eternity. And in doing so, they were revealing their hearts that are going towards judgment. These are the ones that have exploited others, that have withheld fair wages from their workers, in verse 4. And those workers and the wages themselves are crying out to God for judgment. In, these days, in those days, the landlords, these wealthy aristocrats, they would earn such profit from their crops, the land that they own, And the farmers that worked them. And they would receive all the profits and pay back their farmers and the tenants meager wages. Barely able to live on. They've laid up treasure on earth. Gaining wealth by evil means. They're content with a life of luxury and self-indulgence. While others around them go hungry. And James says it only ends up bringing misery and judgment. That has no material value but it will be judged against them. The final accusation in verse 6 is that they've condemned and murdered the righteous person. And whether James is talking about literal murder and violence or just the slow process of oppression and exploitation that leads to the suffering of the poor, either is evil, either comes straight out of uh, wickedness and will lead them into judgment, James says that they are fattening their hearts on a day of slaughter. They're preparing themselves for their own judgment, which is coming upon them. And this is both sinful and foolish. It's sinful because they're exploiting others who are made in the image of God and who have dignity and worth and deserve fair and equal treatment. But it's also foolish because they're neglecting God. They're neglecting the coming judgment. So we have these two groups. The merchant class, the land-owning class. Both are connected by their use of wealth and how they approach their money. And wealth is not evil. To have money is not evil, does not make you evil. In the kingdom of God, it just doesn't have any value. (laughs) But if you put your faith in your wealth, if your world, if your actions revolve around your wealth and the gaining of wealth, if it is an idol in your life, then your wealth is no longer indifferent. Then your wealth is actually used and measured against you in judgment. So the sin that James is calling out here—that wealth is kind of the the linchpin of it—is really the neglect of the reality of God and of his judgment. These two approaches to wealth, the misuse of wealth, are just two manifestations of a worldview that neglects the reality of God. The first case, it's neglecting God's sovereignty, and the second, neglecting the reality of God's judgment. And so, we don't have to be wealthy landowners, or exploiters, or merchants, to be called out by this. Because really the main issue here is the underlying worldview that neglects God. So all of us need to be asking ourselves the question, how will we learn to not neglect the reality of God? How will we learn to submit to his sovereignty, to receive and to be aware of his coming judgment? All of us are wrapped up in these questions, whether or not you own land or not. All of us can be called out by this. All of us can be made uncomfortable by this. And that's okay. It's okay if scripture makes you uncomfortable. That's part of the point sometimes. Is that when God desires to make us holy, when God desires to chip away at sin and to to shape us into his likeness, sometimes that's going to be uncomfortable. But the gospel, encountering Jesus helps us to ask the right questions. And the right questions to ask here are, what is your world rooted in? What is your faith rooted in? What does it revolve around? So we want to ask the Holy Spirit to help us ask the right questions like, what presuppositions am I basing my plans on? What foundational understanding of the way the world works am I using to build my goals upon, my ambitions, my hopes and dreams? Who might be suffering as I pursue my plans and my goals? Am I trying to fit God into as one piece of my schedule, of my agenda, of my aims? Or am I shaping my plans and my goals around God and His sovereignty. Where might my actions, my plan making, uh, my agendas be rooted in arrogance? I'm trying to establish myself as Lord. We need to let the Holy Spirit help us to ask these questions, to ask the right questions. But if you are putting your faith, in your own wealth or your own gain, your own profit, your plans in order to serve your gods of worldly success or security or power, you're going to see these things fail you. They're going you're going to see these things contribute to your judgment and be weighed against you. But if our worldview is shaped around the gospel and the sovereignty of God, the reality of God and his judgment then our foundation is radically different. And it's going to show in our actions. It's going to show in our decisions and in our relationships. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. It affects everything, from the biggest plans to the smallest plans, from the ethics of how you make your money, to how you treat your family, to how you relate to your community, to how you engage with the politics of your nation. The gospel changes all of it, and Jesus wants all of it. All of this. We will always be putting our faith in that which serves our God. So, if your God is your own security or success or power or pleasure, then it's natural to put your faith in money that gives you access to those things. But these things will fail you, these things make terrible gods, they are false gods. And they will, uh, when you worship them, it will lead to your judgment and destruction. But if your God is the Lord, who made the universe, who upholds the universe, who loves you, and who sent his son to die for you, then you put your faith in Jesus, who gives you access to him. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. And he will lead you into eternity. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you that uh, you preach hard words to us in love. And you give hard words because you love us and want to see us uh, loved into your salvation. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would implant these words in our hearts and let them grow and bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.